0: did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith just as abraham believed god and it was counted to him for righteousness know then i'm sorry <clears throat> know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of abraham And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now, it is evident uh, that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, or I'm sorry, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. My uh, heritage and my tradition of growing up in church causes me to want to add, may the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. I want to be clear, that's not, if you don't say that, it doesn't mean that the word isn't blessed. I want to be clear. Don't want you to think that was law. Uh, This is kind of a unique way to start a chapter, right? Now, we know that the Bible wasn't written in chapters and verses the way we see it now, uh, but this is still an interesting way to address people you love, right? Uh, As a kid, uh, I had, this is probably no shock to anyone here, but I had a bit of a slick mouth as a child. Uh, and I knew it because my grandmother had a way of like slapping you in the mouth without actually slapping you in the mouth. It was like a, a pop on your lips. It was just the soft part, and it was just enough to remind you that it's this area that you need to work on, young man. This this right here is what you. No, no, no. You're using that. I need you to not use it as much. And so, as a kid, I learned early uh, that you shouldn't say everything you think. Uh, But then, I got intelligent for a period of time, and I started to say or preface my phrases to my grandparents like this. Uh, Hey, Grandma, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Uh, Hey, Dad, I'm not trying to be slick. (laughs) But fill in the gap, right? (laughs) And of course, you all know that no matter what I said after, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Doesn't much matter, right? (laughs) Words are flying, hands are flying afterwards, and, and you know, uh, a lesson was learned, needless to say. The, the point is, uh, a lot of times that we, we'll make phrases, we'll say things to people we love, right? And, 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 and that, sometimes it may get dicey, but I guarantee none of you are like, hey, you foolish idiots. One translation of this actually reads, like, how idiotic can you be? I think we should understand that Paul's, like desire here isn't to insult the Galatians. Like, this foolish doesn't mean uh, you're remedial, right, you're you're, you're, uh, unintelligent, Uh, doesn't mean stupid, anything like that. The word foolish in this context means this, you know better. It means you know better. It means you have the intellect, you have the information. I have taught you, you know better than this, and yet, you are being mentally lazy and doing something you know you shouldn't do. This word foolish isn't like, you know, he wants to insult them or, or, or even belittle them. This word acknowledges that there is truth, that they know that they have laid down. They have been fooled. They have been uh, bamboozled or hood-swinged. I don't know what it is about bamboozled or hood-swinged, but you got to say both of them together. You ever notice that? kind of can't say one without the other. Uh, and, and, and so you have let someone, he says, uh, uh, bewitch you. It's, it's, it's almost like putting a spell on you. You've let someone trick you away from the truth that you know. It might seem like Paul is just angry, like he's just some madman going off on, on his, his people. I see videos every once in a while on, on Instagram of pastors that are like berating the flock because they didn't get a watch or a car or a special day or a flower made of dollar bills. I don't know who ever decided that was even a worthy pastoral gift. A flower made of dollar? Come on. Like how, do you do you want a flower made of that? You don't. You don't. There's so many reasons why people seemingly kind of do stuff like this and if we're not careful because we see this all the time seeing an upset preacher or a passionate speaker just kind of feels like that's just another day one of one of those preachers going off on people again and we can almost like read this and like like not even see the urgency like not even hear his heart his passion in this sense we just kind of write it off oh that's just one of those preachers But the idea here is that uh, not just the lives of these people are in jeopardy, but Paul knows that these Judaizers, and we've talked about this for a few weeks now, so you know uh, that that in Galatia at this time, this region, there were Judaizers, there were men coming from Jerusalem that are are enforcing not just uh, uh, the validity of Christ, but they are adding to it the Mosaic law. They're adding to it specifically circumcision. And for most of us, you know, like, again, granted, some of us, this won't hit you as hard, you know, maybe 60% of us, right? Okay, for the guys, this is a real big thing, right? Like, this is, you realize grown men were getting circumcised, like in their 40s and 30s, like, like three guys next to you, legs just trim, it's, it's a tremble. It's real talk. It's a real thing, and, and, and I realize not everybody fears it, but this is even bigger than just the physical implications. I'm a guy, so there are physical implications, but this is even bigger than that because the truth now of the gospel is being threatened. Like people are actually forcing people um, after they get saved, after they say they put faith in Jesus, they're not forcing one type of culture on everybody. They're forcing people who who are not Jewish, weren't born in the Jewish lineage, and now they're forcing them to do what Jews do. And in their doing this, they're literally saying, hey, that Jesus guy is cool, uh, but he ain't everything. To get everything that this Christian life has to offer, you got to, let me take that knife to you, fella. You got to start changing your diet, uh, ma'am. You got to switch up things and you have to do what they have done. And Paul knows, maybe even more uh, than we realize today, that this isn't just a then problem, this is a forever problem. Like this is, it has implications well beyond that era even, even here. And today there are some of us who in God's presence just can't receive his love freely. How would you be surprised how many people I talk to? who are like struggling to receive a free gift. Could you imagine if you're like in the supermarket, right? And, and there's like, you know, in, in the, I think all of us at this point, we know that the self-checkout line, uh, even if it does have some limitations, right? All of us are asking for forgiveness because if you go a couple over, you're getting in that line, right? So we're all in the self-checkout line. Could you imagine somebody with a super big buggy or a couple of them, I don't know, and, and all of these groceries, all of these items, and they get to the front, and somebody walks over and say, hey, I just want to let you know I'm going to pay for all of these groceries. I got it covered. And, and that person's response, rather than going, oh, thank you, I'm so glad, you know, maybe let me get a couple Skittles. Like, all, that person's response changes to, okay, cool, I appreciate that you're going to do that, but let me, I got a coupon for two of these things. Let me, let me dig for, could you imagine being in the line that's held up, watching this back up because a person is struggling to receive something that doesn't cost them anything. Only pride would have you hold up a line so that you can, I got, I got got a coupon here, I can because you know I you don't want to pay full price you know that's that would seem odd right it would seem (laughs) come on now some of you when the coupons are needed you still struggle being behind them you would be some of y'all would lose y'all y'all would lay your religion down like Pastor Flint said you'd be yelling at the hey just take the free stuff (laughs) but it's pride it's I'll add foolish pride that would be holding up the, rece- the, the receiving of something incredible so that you can add to it in some way. Two lot of coupon ain't gonna make no difference with a $400 grocery bill. Meaning, even if you could do it right, it couldn't cover the debt. Even if. You were as right as you want to be, said as many right things as you ought to say. (laughs) On your best day, your coupon wouldn't even be a tenth of what has been done or sacrificed to afford to pay your debt. And yet, because of a lack of faith, we hold up the line not receiving what is freely out. This is why Paul is emphatic here. Paul knows that this is life or death. This is not just some church service thing. This is not just some some issue for a few people. No, this will affect everyone until he returns. This impacts our ability to hear, to receive what is freely ours in Christ Jesus. So when you see (laughs) Paul… How foolish can you be? This isn't Paul upset or or just making a personal attack. This is Paul hearing the lives of so many people, years, thousands of years later, struggle in God's presence, struggle uh, with, with being forgiven. So many people, even now, like we share, hey, God has already forgiven you. The love of Christ is available to you right here, right now. You don't have to do anything. You just believe that he's done what he has, and you get to be saved. You get to receive this love. And people are looking at us going, okay, cool, but do you know what I've done? And we're like, it doesn't matter what you've done. (laughs) Look at what he's done. And they're like, oh, yeah, the cross, that's super dope, but I really messed up. And we're like, okay, but Jesus, (laughs) like son of God, whole cross, died, like whipped, like the horrible, gory scene of the cross, his perfect life. Like the contrast of that is what affords us total forgiveness. But there are people who struggle to receive it. And here's the thing, if you struggle to forgive yourself, and God has already forgiven you, which one are you worshiping more? If your sins have been forgiven you by a holy God, creator of everything, if he looks at you and says, just now, We'll talk about it in a second. He says, like, the thing about justification is it doesn't mean that now you've done everything right. No, it just means it's accounted. It's credited to your account. He looks and says, just. And then you, in his presence, go, ah, I know I'm forgiven, but I don't really feel forgiven. Who are you esteeming higher, him or you? This is why this is a very important thing, because some of us are shackled and burdened here now today. And here's the thing, right? You don't look like it. <laughs> when people see you or they talk to you, you're smiling, you're coherent, you can hold a conversation, right? Some of us even perfect the idea of sharing an intimate part of our lives in an unintimate way. A little practice, you can get good at it. You can reference something from your past or your story of origin in a way where you're disconnected from it. I'll be honest with y'all, because I feel like if you got the mic, you got to go first. I would tell my story at different moments and times. And instead of saying I, I'd say you. (laughs) I'd go, well, you know, everybody has a past, you know. So yeah, I didn't go with my biological father, but you know, everybody, you know. What's that? That's acknowledging it happened, but being disconnected from it. I don't say I have felt the loss of growing up without my biological father. Because to say that would connect me to it and you to me, really. But instead we learn to use other words and phrases. Well, you know, everybody got a story. It's a nominal situation. You know, a lot of dads not in homes, you know, I ain't special. What does that do? That disconnects me so that I don't have to feel the weight of that sin, take it to God and be forgiven. Like, does this make sense? Like, can't you see how, how something as simple as acknowledging you are forgiven and you are in a right standing with the God of the universe has impact on your day-to-day life? Can I be honest with some of y'all? I pray for y'all single people. I pray for y'all. Because you, single people, you get to go out with other single people. And you having all these conversations that are the fakest conversations two people ain't ever had. You done got all made up. Wearing your very best fits and shoes and hair and whatever else you wear. I don't, I don't know. And you sit down in front of somebody as the very best version of yourself and try to hold this this conversation they just make something happen out of thin jesus i pray for y'all because it's 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 literally built on just presenting somebody what you think they want to see and the problem with that is you never get to the real thing and so of course if you do that long enough and then you actually start to like the representation of the person It's like your agent and their agent got together. They're cool. Then you decide, you know what? Our agents, our representation have been meeting. They've been having a good time together. You know, let's take this to the next level. Let's get married. And then when you say I do, both your agents walk off the stage. (laughs) Oh, it may take you a while. You know, you might make it to wedding night, honeymoon, you know, it might still be around. But at some point, guess what? They walking out. And now, You, who you've always been, are now meeting them, who they've always been. And now, God forbid, you have to try to make something happen, make something beautiful. Now that the real you, with all your childhood issues, all your relationships, is now sitting there with them. And whether you know it or not, At this moment is when the gospel becomes most real to us because the gospel says that no matter what you've done, when you receive it, when you accept it, you are now. Not just better, not just reformed, you are new. You're made new. You were dead, now you're alive to Christ. And now you have to try to make something happen. And so one of the reasons why I pray, and again, single people, my my daughter, she's... Anybody... (laughs) Young people, my nephews, I pray as much as I can because I know that in this world, we are tempted to conceal our lack of forgiveness. We're tempted to to create a decoration where you don't need to be forgiven to be successful. You realize some people even do church without acknowledging them being forgiven. I'll give you a hint. If you're ever in church and people are more excited about stuff God does than God, (laughs) that's an indication that, hey, maybe somebody isn't acknowledging that we've been made free, made alive in Christ. And you know why? It's because we are trying to cover up our mess with stuff. When you realize that Christ has made you free and forgiven, do you realize you want nothing more than him? Because I don't need stuff. I actually just need to be at peace with the God of the universe. Do you realize I can get stuff on my own once I'm at peace with the fact that he's forgiven who I am right now? This is why this is such an important thing family I can't like we can't just dive into Galatians and get to talking historical context if you're looking at this as a dumb problem if you're looking at it and going okay well that was dumb a long time ago fonz. that's antiquated that has nothing to do with me now I got bills I got family I got all of these other things going on I'm I'm way too busy this is not like God bless y'all preachers and all of that but I need something practical This is a actually profoundly practical message. And it answers some profoundly practical questions. Matter of fact, some people would even say some of the best practical questions are actually theological questions. And I'll give you a couple <clears throat> as we get started. One is this. Once we are forgiven, once we are saved, once we say the prayer we receive, what Christ has done, now what? What? What do we do? Because here's the thing. After you've you've been justified, you've realized that, the next thing is, well, I still have issues forgiving. I still say the wrong things. I still do the wrong things. It's like, okay, I, I got saved and, and he made me new, but like now what? And that's one of the questions that this answers. Uh, There is this idea, not just of justification, which is being declared just or right, but sanctification, which is how we actually start to grow and become more like Jesus. And for so many church people uh, and just religious people alike, right, we believe that we're saved by grace through faith, but we're sanctified through trying really, really hard. And so we come to God in faith, yes, I believe it. Sometimes tears, sometimes not, depends on the person. But we come to God open saying, yes, I believe that Jesus did die for my sins. I receive this gift of salvation. And then when it's time to grow, we put the oneness all on our shoulders. How smart you can be, how much you can learn, how, 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 how many services you can attend, how many conferences you had, how many books you can knock out in a six month window. And we forget that with Jesus, how we entered is how we advance. I know it's a heck of an intro, right? <laughs> how we enter is how we advance. Meaning, and this is where Paul begins his, his, his question. It sets us right here. When Paul says in verse, uh, well, we'll start at one. We'll just go right back down to our question. It says, "Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who tricked you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this, only this. Now, you know you're going to get it when somebody wants to ask you just one question. Because there's usually more. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or the faith? So now, a little historical context. Uh, So, Paul at this time, again, his gospel, what he's been preaching is under attack. Judaizers are telling the Galatian church that, hey, Paul has messed y'all up. He's preached a gospel that's incomplete. Paul has told you a little bit of the truth, but he's held back some of it from you. And that that he's held back is the Mosaic law part. We'll help you out and we'll help you uh, get the fullness of it by becoming a Jew, essentially. And so Paul has to now defend his gospel to the Galatian church. Everybody with me? So that's what he's doing. When he, what we see, when he actually starts 3-1, it ends about 4, actually at the end of chapter 4. So for the next, you know, two chapters, Paul is laying out his theological argument, basically. He's, he's defending this gospel that he's preached. And what he's saying is, uh, he said, hey, how did y'all get in this in the first place? Was it because you were such good law followers? Was it because of the works of the law? Was it because of circumcision? Or was it by the Spirit of God? Now this is an interesting tactic because we don't see Paul use it all the time. Like Paul is a very, you know, uh, you know I think most of us, we probably call Paul an A-type personality. He's very cut and dry, very straight to the point. Uh, and now he's actually appealing to their experience and saying, hey, how did you experience uh, the fullness of God, the freedom of God? Was it by the works of the law, or was it by His Spirit that came and regenerated you? Did His Spirit come and make the truth of the gospel more than just information to you? Did the Spirit of God cause you to hear uh, the preaching of Jesus in such a way where you decided, yes, I believe it, and your life was changed? Or did it happen by way of works? He assumes the answer by the next question, which is, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected or completed by the flesh? In other words, you began again, he's assuming the answer, that's what makes it a rhetorical question, to say, hey, how'd you start? Was it the Holy Spirit or was it you and your law and your circumcision? The answer of which is, of course, the Holy Spirit. His next question is, okay, cool. Well, if if you began, if you got into the faith by way of the Holy Spirit, why are you now trying to perfect or accomplish your goal by way of the law? In other words, why do you think that faith is required to get into the faith, but faith isn't required to develop once you're a part of it? Why do you think... That, that, that you needed the Holy Spirit to get into this life, to, to clearly see Jesus, to have something revealed beyond flesh and blood. And then after getting into it, you think that you're being a good little Christian or a good little whatever, now is the way to go. Again, I'm going to say this phrase 18 more times in the next 30 minutes. How we enter is how we advance. We did not enter into salvation because we were so good, we were crushing life so bad that God just had to come and get with us because we just had it all together. I've never heard a testimony where, you know, I was at the highest point in my life and God came to me and said, you know, I want to roll with you. No, most of our testimonies, most of our stories, it doesn't begin with us at the height. It begins with us at one of the lowest, right? It begins with us realizing the weight of our sin. It, it starts with us realizing how bankrupt we are. That's when the, when the blessed, the Beatitudes that says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, poor in spirit means that you, you realize you don't have enough to pay the debt of your sin, that you can't make up the difference, so to speak. You realize that you are inherently just... Not, you can't do it. You're not there. You're not good enough. You don't know enough. You're not smart enough, and you need help. And that bankruptcy of spirit, that poor in spirit, is how we come to know that we need a Savior that's supposed to be there. And Paul said, well, how was you so aware of that at one point, but now you aren't? This began because you recognized there was a deficiency in your ability to be everything God called you to be without Him. But somewhere along the line, it got capable for you to now turn yourself. He said, said, "You, you began with the Spirit, but now you're being perfected in the flesh. In other words, even though this began with your relationship with God, now you are doing this work of making you smarter, wiser, better, stronger, mature. I love the disciplines of the church. Can I say that? I need to be honest, and I need to preface this with that. Otherwise, some of you might take this the wrong way. Love prayer. We've had three or four prayer meetings this week already. We had prayer meetings some of y'all didn't even know about that we had. People just walked in and got prayer. It's a beautiful thing. We had prayer on Friday too. That was great too. Love disciplines. Love prayer. Love fasting. Love fellowship. Celebration. That's beautiful. But, but we have this idea that the more disciplines we add to our life, the more mature we are. Can I be honest with you? I struggle with us branding spiritual maturity. And the reason I struggle with it is because once you make a picture that this person is mature, then it looks like anybody who does what that person is doing is also mature. It's dangerous to say, well, this person's mature. I say the French way. That sounds so much better, right? Mature, right? If I say it that way, maybe it's spiritual. And we'll we'll assign maturity to a person that shows up all the time. Oh, they're mature. Every time the doors of the church are open, they're there. Oh, I seen them. They're there early. Moving stuff, helping stuff. They stay late. Moving, helping, they're mature. Is it possible for a person to show up every time the doors are open and still not be mature? Yeah. Is it possible for someone to read their Bible every day and still not ever have a deepening relationship with the God that they're reading about? Yes. The fear sometimes is that some of us get saved and we come into the faith and we find a person that's an archetype. And we say, okay, cool. This person is mature. When I get like them, I know I've made it. And we make that decision based on external realities. We're not even asking how deep their faith is. We're not even asking how they uh, have worked with God over a long period of time. We're just saying, well, hey, they look put together. They look like every time somebody asks them a question, they know the answer. They say all the right stuff. That person must be mature. The problem I have with it is I don't have to convince you that there's people in pulpits like this one with the mic even better than this one every week telling people a bunch of stuff that may or may not be spiritually mature based on how they began with God and where they are now. What makes us mature isn't that you memorize some stuff or you you change to some dress code that's used by a few, what makes us mature is that where we begin with God, our place of reliance wholly on the Spirit of God has actually grown as we've walked with Him, not decreased. For some reason, we think spiritual maturity is depending on God less all conferences about it. Hey, come and we'll show you what to do so that you don't have to depend on the Holy Spirit for every little thing. We'll give you the formula. We'll teach you the steps. And you can be mature like us. After a while, you'll be able to do church. Won't even need the input of the Holy Spirit. Start at this time. That's when studies show people love to come. Have this kind of band. Study shows that does well. Make sure you get a good worship leader. Need to be attractive. Need to be this and this and that. Why? So that you can do the formula and you won't have to depend on the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is saying. You begun by the Spirit, but now you're going to be completed or perfected by the works of the flesh. Oh, now you're so good you don't need it. Now you got this. We'll go back to the text. Verse 3. Are you so foolish? (laughs) Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed... It was in vain. Now, we don't have the time. I won't won't do it. But if you, on your own search, want to go back to Acts 13 and 14, you'll actually see Paul's journey through Galatia. You'll see some of the persecution that Paul endured. Him and Barnabas, that they were ran out of places, chased out. Uh, You'll also see great workings of miracles, great signs and wonders. It's both beautiful and horrible at the same time. And he's saying, hey, I know that you've, you've withstood persecution and some of that persecution hasn't come by unbelievers. Some of it came from Jewish believers that were persecuting these Gentiles because they had not yet been converted to Judaism. So he says, some of y'all just converted because you didn't want to put up a fight. That's why he says, have you suffered in vain? In other words, did you endure all of that with me so that the second I leave you could turn your back on it and just give in, just cave? That's why he says, if indeed it was in vain. In other words, you suffered, you persecuted, uh, you endured this as a good soldier. You lived like Christ. Like, and this is, this is, ah, I can't, I can't, I got to move on. But like, the Holy Spirit doesn't just help us, like, shine like a star in the night sky. The Holy Spirit in you literally allows you to be in the darkest possible place and shine like a light there. We think the Holy Spirit just takes us out of ugly situations and sets us prime and perfectly at the top of the tree. When the Holy Spirit shows up mostly in situations where you can't fathom a way out of, Where there's nothing you can do. There's no wisdom. There's no conniving. There's no cunning way you can get out of, through or navigate this. And that's where the Holy Spirit shows up. He's saying, you know what it's like to be persecuted, to have the Spirit of Christ in you, reminding you that what you're feeling right now is a bit of what Jesus felt when he purchased our salvation and giving glory and honor to some of those darkest moments. He said, but now you've turned your back on that. Now you want to be the kind of believer that doesn't need to suffer. When according to the scriptures, those who suffer with him reign with him. Again, fundamental. This is why some of our personal practical questions are theological ones. Because if your question is, well, God, why isn't my life so much better? I suffered enough, Lord. I want to just thrive now. I put my time in suffering. Now, I want to hold my head high. I want to strut like buddy love. And the Holy Spirit is going, well, did Jesus strut to the cross? I don't know if you know it or not, but the Holy Spirit just does nothing but remind us of Jesus. Like he does that all humans everywhere in every language all day long. He just testifies of Jesus over and over again. So we're having bad days, and Jesus is like, "Oh man, just my boss doesn't like me," and da 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 da. And the Holy Spirit is like, "Well, yeah, yeah, yeah." Jesus was hated by those he loved, and you're like, "Oh, my wife, <laughs> she keeps wanting me to take out the trash." You know, I want to wait after my show. You know, I'm sorry, that's my house. I'm sorry. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit, every time we have these, these hard moments. And I say those are trivial, right? Some of us, my brother Clarence, like we know real hard situations, like life-threatening situations. And even there, the Holy Spirit is there testifying of Jesus all day, all night. And this is the Holy Spirit that they've turned their backs on. And maybe us to some degree. Like maybe you and I at at certain places in our life, maybe we have abandoned the same spirit that works these miracles. The same spirit uh, that causes us to be persecuted but not give in. And maybe you and I at certain points have walked away. Maybe we've forgotten our conversion experience. Maybe we're not as connected as we once were to it. Like maybe some of us can't even remember when we got saved. Maybe we just like, oh, you know, I just always know God. You know, me and him just been cool since the womb. We go way back, like four flats on the cat, whatever it is. Maybe we have lost our connection with the way we were pre-Christ and how it was when He came and made everything new. I thank the Lord for the gift of technology that helps us even recall stories how we were converted what it was like let's check out a story of one of our own and their conversion story we'll be right back
1: probably was about second grade or so and my mom sends me to school with a note and this note says i need my work for a week because i'm going to be out for Passover <laughs> and my teacher being a Jewish woman says you're not a Jew you're not Jewish and I had no answers for that I could not explain exactly what this was that I was doing I just knew we did it every year so my mother had to come to the school and explain to my Jewish teacher that we were Judaic Christians to be a Judaish Christian was to uphold the law, and upholding the law was the Old Testament. So my new year wasn't until April. Um, we did not celebrate any holidays, so there was no Christmas. There were Birthdays were really quiet because we really didn't celebrate birthdays like that. The Saturday morning cartoons, that was an absolute no-no because it was the Sabbath. So I kind of missed out on all of that as a kid and not understanding all of what I was doing, that Friday night I would be in church. That was the beginning of the Sabbath. Um, And then on the Sabbath, we did not leave the building. We were there all day, so that means you would come in, um, you know, we'll have the first part of service with the sermon and everything like that and worship. You would break for lunch. We will all eat like a family style um, lunch. We'll come back and then that was Sabbath school. But I couldn't tell you the meaning of any of it. So you had this book of Deuteronomy we would go through, and you had these blessings, and you had these curses. So if you did this, this was the outcome. If you did this, this was the outcome. And that's how the first part of my life, that's what I was taught. I remember a Sunday morning, um, fast forward, I was probably about 14 years old. It was a Sunday morning. Got up, I put a suit on, going to church with my dad and my stepmom and my stepbrother. And I can remember sitting in the back, goofing off with my brother, and all of a sudden becoming more engaged in the songs that they were singing. And I can't quite remember the exact song, but they flowed into how excellent is thy name. And for some reason, that song just hit me in a different place at 14 years old. So 14 year old me has this amazing encounter with Jesus. And now here I am participating and understanding that it's not about tradition. It's not just the Old Testament and this law. There's Jesus who came and changed all of that. That, you know, the word was made flesh. Like that is Jesus. And that was the Jesus I got to know. I was able to worship freely. there was organ, there was, you know guitar players, there was all these other instruments that I didn't grow up with in church. We sang everything a cappella. "Let God hear your voice, O daughters of Zion. Sing ye a new song. And, and that's, you know, that was what was embedded in me, but at 14 at that moment, all of that fell away. All of that broke away, and I've been following Jesus ever since. And so you know life goes on fast forward I'm participating in church I'm singing in a choir and here I am a 17 year old young lady and I meet a man (laughs) and as he watched me continue with my walk with God and learning who I was and who Jesus was he began his own and watching him grow you know, as an individual, but then us together as being a family and raising children, you have to see who Jesus really was in and through us and that it wasn't what we saw. It wasn't our past. It wasn't how we grew up. It wasn't these two different, completely different worlds um, coming together that God had put something there to change things, that Jesus was the center of it all that he became the driving force that made us change generational curses, you know, change all these things because of the gospel that we got to live it out and meet Jesus every day. He gave us grace to open our eyes. We don't live by the law, but we have this amazing savior that gives us life and life abundantly that yeah, we all fall short, but he's still there. His grace is still there. So it's a totally different experience. I am acceptable to God because of the work that Jesus has done. And believing in any other tradition, any other gospel, or any man is a different gospel.
0: Thank the Lord for our sister, Jasmine, who's probably somewhere hiding right now. But we appreciate her letting us in on her conversion story so that we might consider our own. We might consider what it was like when we grew up, whatever way we grew up, when we had whatever experience we had in that moment, when God broke through all of that stuff with his love and his grace. She said, we don't live under the law, but we have a savior who gives us grace. In the same way, Paul says this as he continues. I know some of you were looking at some Files, I don't think you're going to make it to 14. I know, you didn't think I was, but we are one way or the other. Uh, Paul says this in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you, shall all of the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, I know that might sound odd. It may, you know, maybe the the language is a little hard to get, but this is essentially what what Paul is saying here. Again, remember, this is Paul making this defense of his gospel. And what he's saying is, uh, as he's entered already last week, we went over what it means to uh, justification by faith, he's telling them that actually this did not begin with circumcision. Even the Jewish uh, heritage doesn't begin with circumcision. And for this reason, he doesn't reference Moses. He actually references Abraham, who is the father of this people, who, the Bible says, believed God. Now, to be clear here, the Bible doesn't say Abraham believed some stuff about God. The Bible does not say that Abraham took in some facts about God and decided, oh, he might be a good guy. No, Abraham believed God when God told Abraham this. You have no kids right now. You're 99, but I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I am going to make you the premier father of so many descendants that he's like, look up at the sky, look up at the star. You gonna have more than that. Look at the, the sand on the beach. You're going to have more than that. I'm going to do this thing. And at that moment, the Bible says that Abraham, uh, he believed that, that God would fulfill his word, that this was the first kind of gospel in a sense. And this gospel was that God is going to use Abraham's lineage to save all nations, not just one. So imagine people are coming to this Galatian people saying, hey, you need to be like Moses, you need the law, you need to be circumcised. Which might have been a good argument, right? Somebody walks in and says today, hey, uh, Jesus did this, Martin Luther King Jr. did this, and Malcolm X did this. What you going to do? Half of us are like, yep, I'm, I don't even know what, what we're signing up for. But if those three did it, then yep, that sounds like something I want to be a part of. Well, in that day, what they would do is they would say, Jesus is circumcised. Moses is circumcised. Even your boy Paul, he's circumcised. They made this argument that everyone who has mattered in their heritage has done this. So they needed to do it as well. And what Paul is saying here is actually... Uh, that only makes sense if Abraham got circumcised to gain favor with God in the first place. And according to this passage, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He doesn't get circumcised for two chapters. No knife, yet full acceptance with God. Can you see what Paul is doing here? He's saying they keep saying, everybody got to be circumcised. Everybody got to be circumcised. Well, guess what? Abraham found favor in God's sight, not because of his circumcision, not because there was a knife and it was foreskin and all that. Aside. No, he believed God when God told him what he would do. He believed that God exactly is who he is and that he will do what he said he will do. And the Bible says that was the first kind of gospel. And even that gospel wasn't limited to just one people group all nations of you will be blessed through you. What is this? This is Paul making a very clear argument that our justification by faith is actually not new. In other words, Paul wasn't the first person to preach this. What he's saying is, you think that I made something up. No, I got it from your father. Shut up. (laughs) He said, I got this from you the father of many nations, he was the first one to access uh, God because of his faith, not because of his works. He was circumcised later, but he believed God. And and even the the situation that he references uh, is this thing. And I've talked about it. He told uh, Abraham, he would give him a son and he would have all these descendants and Abraham did what we do. Well, God, how will I know if it's so? How will I know if this is really going to come to pass or if it's really going to happen? And they had this thing they would do at the time where they would take sacrificed animals and they would cut them down the middle but they would face them opposite of each other and then they would walk through both both parties would walk through and what this was 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 a type of old covenant this was a sign a symbol that said hey we both are going to do what this requires otherwise let us be like these dead animals here Abraham has this moment where he he sets up everything he lays the animals out but then he falls asleep and God, the Bible says, "This like a smoking pot in his fire walks through the animals. In other words, God made a covenant with himself on behalf of Abraham. In other words, it, it's to, for us both to do it would mean I need you to do something. Normally, two people got to walk through. They got it's like today. Two people got to shake hands. They got to agree. We got to have a notary. It's got to be official. And God says, he looked around, ain't nobody else. So I'll do it. He said, I'll make a covenant with you. I ain't worried about what you're going to do because I know what I will do. God is the one that makes the covenant, not because Abraham is circumcised. <laughs> oh, man. Imagine how he hears us scrunching around trying to give him something, trying to offer him something today. He's already set this thing up where there uh, uh, is, again, the way we enter is the way we advance. Understand, even after you get into faith and you've been studying and you got you some scriptures and you got you maybe a little revelation, a little insight, and you think now, now you got something to offer him. You're thinking, oh, yeah, when you first met me, God, I wasn't worth much. But now, nah, <laughs> I've been walking with you a while and prayed. I didn't learned some things. I can hold you down, God. This ought to be encouraging for those of us who feel like our journey isn't going the way we thought it should. Because what it means is you think your journey is based on you. So some of you are going, well, I've been walking with God for a long time, and I want to see more. I want to see more development and more growth. I want to be more like Jesus, and I've been trying to get it to happen, but it just hasn't happened the way it looks like it's happening for her or happening for him or happening for them. And the truth is that is not contingent or dependent upon you relying on the law, relying on your works, relying on how much Scripture you learn or, or how many prayer meetings you can attend. It's not based on you relying on how many spiritual disciplines you can master in and of yourself. It's based on one thing, which is, do you believe God? What if your growth wasn't about Uh, how uh, much you know or how much you do or how much you say or how much you don't say, but it was about, do you believe God more today than you did when you started or less? And I know at first all of us are going to say, yes, I totally believe more. Think about it. When you first believed, you fully believed that his sacrifice was enough to save you. You fully believed that he could take care of your sins, that it wasn't a need. You didn't need to add anything to it, but after being safe for some time, now you feel a need to add to it with your works. What does that mean? It means that faith has decreased as my ability has increased. That's why what he says in verse 10, those who rely on the law. I think, we think that, you know, I need more faith, God. I need more faith. I need to do more. Well, the truth is you might not actually need more faith. Maybe You need to wrangle together the faith that you have that's now scattered about all of these other things. Because the truth is, some of you got a lot of faith. You just have a lot of faith in you. Let's be honest. My wife reminds me, I got faith in Jeep every time I get in that car and go somewhere. I'm believing that they made it, that it works. I got faith in my own ability. I got faith in in my ability to learn. I got faith in, in my family. I got faith And my brothers and my sister, I got, I got, we we got faith for a whole lot of things. We got faith in 401ks, praying that works out one day, right? Like, like we got faith scattered all about. What would it look like for you to just gather all of that scattered faith? I think maybe this is why some of us struggle forgiving ourselves and other people. Because truthfully, even though God has forgiven us, we can't forgive them because what they did was just so egregious. It was so unnecessary, so heart-wrenching. And even, hear me, even though what they did is awful, I'm sure of it. I think if I sat down with, with, with as many as, as I could and we talked about things that is hard to forgive, I guarantee those would be hard, real things, real traumas. So we're not belittling those. We're not uh, denigrating those. They are real. But could it be that when the God of the universe forgives us, when the only one holy and righteous forgives us and we refuse to forgive somebody else, we're thinking that there is a righteousness there that will exceed that of Jesus's. Like, think about it. If I can't forgive me, it's because I think my own righteousness is higher. I think that if I did it the right way, it would matter more. I think that if I was better, I would have something to offer Jesus. So I struggle forgiving myself because I wrestle with his forgiveness and me being worth it. And the truth of the gospel is that it offends all of us equally because none of us are good enough to have it. Not one of us. (laughs) The speaker tells the analogy of three swimmers, one Olympic swimmer, one so-so, one not at all. I imagine that last one might have been from Detroit. I heard a lot of y'all can't swim. I don't know why. I don't <laughs> I don't know if that's the east side, west side. Is that both? I don't know. For Pontiac. I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, the idea is if one can't swim at all, one can barely swim, and one is an Olympic swimmer if they got to swim 200 miles. Guess what? Everybody drowned. <laughs> so it doesn't matter who got further before they drowned. Doesn't matter. How far you got before you gave it up. Doesn't matter because you're not going to get there ultimately. In other words, our inability to forgive somebody else is because we have elevated another person's righteousness ahead of that of God's. And so some of you won't be able to, hear me, you won't be able to forgive until you demote their righteousness and place it up under that of God's. And if God forgives you, calls you just, if he sees you knowing you deserve death, right? But by virtue of his grace and your faith in his grace, if he saved you, if he's made you new, then reaching back and giving someone else the keys to your heart means you have esteemed their righteousness and they're doing the right thing above that of God. Some of us won't respond to god as long as we're still waiting for somebody else to do right by us i know it sounds like therapy a little bit i'll admit but some of us are going through life waiting for somebody else to give us a phrase to set us free to see us to acknowledge us and god is going i have already done it in jesus You'll never be more seen than you were by Jesus' eyes on the cross where he saw you, saw the chasm between us, and decided to die for you. You'll never be more heard, given a voice, than Jesus when he goes, Hey, I know you, you don't even know you got a problem. You can't even cry out for a Savior, but I'll come and I'll die for you. And we struggle so hard to loosen our grip on earthly stuff even earthly trauma, and heaven is trying to set us free. I'm done, I am. But the Bible says that Jesus became a curse. Like we talked about this oath where you walk through, and if you don't do it, you're like those sacrificed pieces. But the Bible says that Abraham, it was counted then for righteous. It was accredited. It was reckoned. That's an accounting term, which just means it gets added to his account. His account was was increased, accrued, if you will. Meanwhile, Jesus' was debited. Jesus pays the cost of someone that could not keep the law. The irony, though, is Jesus lived perfectly under the law. Think about this. Jesus did no sin. The Bible says, he who knew no sin. Let's be clear. There was never a point where Jesus was a sinner. He was made to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of Christ. Like this, this is how this works. Which means, this is what it means. It means nobody can keep the law. Nobody can live as a law keeper. This is why it's a curse. There was a way to atone when you made mistakes. Most Jewish people would would acknowledge that. There's ways to atone when they make mistakes. But imagine those trips back and forth to the temple. Because you just got back, but then you made a mistake and now you got to go back again. Right? But then way back. Ah, not right. Now they got to go back. It's a curse because none of us, hear me, none of us can live under the weight of law-keeping. I don't care how good you think you are, none of us can live under the weight of score-keeping every single day. That is a curse, the Bible says. Especially when, according to what Abraham had happened, because of God's grace, Abraham received this blessing through faith in God, right? And even now, our receiving of the blessing of Abraham through our faith is how we get access to the Spirit that totally changes us and makes us new. So the idea here is that the only one that could fulfill the law, that could live under it, came, perfected the law, absorbed our curse, and died our death in its place. Do you realize in Jesus, all of that has been satisfied in one person? Because the issue is no person could be right enough to fulfill the law. And then no one could absorb our penalty for not fulfilling the law. And Jesus does both. Jesus says, Hey, I'll come live the life you couldn't live and die the death you couldn't die. That is the gospel. The gospel is not some keychain, it ain't some way to do church. No, the gospel is that the God of the universe has seen you, heard you afar uh, off, and hasn't waited for you to get yourself together. One of the biggest lies of all time. I met God halfway. Not never. (laughs) Not never. What's halfway to heaven? You don't even know what it is. You don't even know. You can't. You have never met God halfway. There's no such thing. His grace has bum-rushed you. You're even aware that you need him because of him. You're even able to cry out, Abba, Father, because of him you able to see your sin because of him. He's there in every part of that. And even that is a testament to Abraham believing God and through his seed, all nations being blessed. So that means this. It's a couple of things. I'm, 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 I'm done. I would say, oh, look at that. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. That's going to be a neat trick. All right. So that means a couple of things. We got to ask ourselves, one, have you gotten disconnected with your origin story? Like, have you forgotten how you got into this thing? Because again, how you enter is how you advance. You didn't get in because you were doing it right. You didn't get in because you mastered this. You got in because of His grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how all of this started for you. So don't abandon His spirit. Don't abandon relying on His Spirit every day of your life. It's a gift. Holy Spirit ain't training wheels. He ain't there just until you kind of get the hang of this life thing and then you don't need Him anymore. That's God with us. We'll repent of that later. Two other things. You got to ask yourself, have you totally seen this universalism of the gospel and in, in, in the context of it not being for one kind of person the gospel has worked all throughout eras and decades and centuries because it cannot be owned or possessed by one culture I'm going to say something it's going to be rough at first but I think you will get there afterwards the gospel isn't black or white no such thing as a black gospel it's not a white gospel it's not a spanish gospel god's heart has never been for there to be a black church for that to be necessary you realize the people who started the black church didn't even want to do it there's documented testimony they didn't want to but they weren't allowed to worship so guess what they did well hey it was a theological issue are we gonna do it are we not it wasn't god's heart. God's heart is not for one people to possess the gospel. It works in any culture. It works in tribes that don't have uh, electricity. The gospel works there. It thrives. It flourishes there. It works here on the east side or the west side. It works in, in, in D.C. or Detroit or L.A. or Mumbai. The gospel works everywhere because no one style or type owns it. Nobody has the patent on the gospel the gospel ain't a style. It's not a it's definitely not a genre. Please don't give me definitely ain't that the gospel is the power of God to save humanity how could that be limited to one person, one type one style, one area, one region. It can't be. This is why Paul was fighting so hard he knew this cannot be quenched. This movement of God can't be stopped because of one type, one style, one idea that says, no, 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 we need to have them convert in order to get the fullness. No, Paul is defending the liberty that we have in Christ Jesus, and you have it here. Now, you see people every day that are different, that are not like you. And if you don't, maybe you haven't fully believed the gospel. The gospel causes you to identify people that don't think like you, that don't look like you. I know it may be shocking to some of you, but because we have a diverse church, there are people who think differently. And a lot of us aren't used to even having to be in the same room with people who think differently than we do. We happen to believe it's one of the best things about it. That the Holy Spirit keeps us together on the essentials, even if we disagree on non-essentials. Even if you think one thing and I think another. When we both lay that down and we come together, only one glorified is Jesus. The only one. This is the call of the gospel. For us to not weaponize our positions, not weaponize our cultures, not weaponize the things that are most familiar to us. Because the gospel doesn't cause you to have to be like someone else for you to receive what God has graced and meant for you. Thank you for listening to the Detroit Church Podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, like, and rate. And if you're not already, you can follow us on social media by searching for Detroit Church.